You are listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Well, I am honored and privileged to talk to you this morning about the topic of rest. And uh, when Ron reached out about um, potentially speaking, I think it was, it was a date on the calendar. Obviously, he was going to be at the conference. We're going through the Bible. It just happened to land on, at least for me, what feels like an ideal topic to speak on. Um, but not because I'm so good at resting. Um, I remember when a mentor talked to me about how the best players don't make the best coaches. Um, he spoke to me about how he, was, uh, he played the, pl- the clarinet, and he talked about how one of the best clarinet teachers in the world played at some second or third tier, tier Philharmonic, like the Buffalo Philharmonic. Or similarly, if you look at um, one of the teams in Major League Baseball right now that's turning things upside down, uh, by using a cast of coaches that is some sort of team of misfits, Right? One of them is a bullpen catcher who uh, spent 15 years literally catching in the bullpen, wasn't even good enough to get on the field. Uh, another one topped out at Division II in college. And now, before I go on, I want to recognize that simply by showing any baseball team other than the Dodgers, I recognize I will never be asked to speak again. <laughs> um, but part of the reason that I am qualified to speak on the topic of rest is because of how hard it is for me to rest. If I could just give you for a moment, thanks to the, we have some incredible technology these days that lets us do these kind of things. I want to give you a quick live look inside my brain. And the Lord saw fit to give me a brain with Tourette syndrome and ADHD, which means that my brain operates comfortably at 80 miles an hour, but I don't have a first gear, I don't have a second gear, and Lord knows I don't have a brake on my brain. And so I'm a former, you know, designer, creative, I write songs, now I sell software. I am well optimized for this uber-connected, always-on digital world. But it comes at a cost, right? And so for me, the idea of solitude, stillness before the Lord, is honestly excruciating. Like, thinking of spending 15, 20 minutes in silence does not sound attractive, naturally, to me. And so perhaps in the same way that maybe someone who is genetically predisposed to some form of substance abuse might have an extra passion for talking about their journey of sobriety, in the same way, I believe I'm uniquely positioned to speak about what it means in a world of switching of devices, constant stimulation, to work to build practices that enable Jesus to speak to me in a small, still voice. So I offer these learnings to you, not as a member of the New York Philharmonic, but the Canby Philharmonic, or the LA Dodgers, but the Canby Cougars. So one of the hard-won lessons that I've had from three decades of studying scripture is that one of the simplest ways to avoid misunderstanding any passage of scripture is actually just to step back, right? To zoom out. And so what does this word mean in the context of the sentence? What does the sentence mean in the context of the chapter? Where does the chapter sit in the book? Where is the book in scripture, right? 
And so one of the best resources that we have today is uh, oddly situated right here in Portland, Oregon. That is the Bible Project. And so they have um, a quick video that I'm going to show the first four minutes of about the book of Psalms to give us a sense about how the book is organized and where Psalms 23 sits within the books. And let's see, cross your fingers, let's see if video number two goes better than video number one. The book of Psalms, it's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73, actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph, or from the sons of Korah, and some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one-third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple, but the book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now to see how the book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command to tell a group of people to praise Yah which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book. So, it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading book one, book two, book three, four, and five at various points, and that these divide the book into five large sections. Now, the reason for this is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the book has a conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts. And so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning to look for an introduction. And what do we find? Psalms 1 and 2, which stand outside of book 1 because most of the poems in book 1 are linked to David, except Psalms 1 and 2, which are anonymous. Psalm 1 celebrates how blessed the person is who meditates on the Torah, prayerfully reading it day and night and then obeying it. Now, the word Torah simply means teaching, and more specifically, it came to refer to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. And here, actually, the word seems to be used with both meanings in mind, which explains why it has five main parts. The book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands given in the first Torah. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one day a messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom over the world, defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. Now Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all those who take refuge in the messianic king will be blessed. 
precisely the word used to open Psalm 1. And so together, these two poems tell us that the book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people as they strive to be faithful to the commands of the Torah as they hope and wait for the future messianic kingdom. Now with these two themes introduced, we can start to see how the smaller books have been designed as well around these two ideas. So for example, book one has right at the center a collection of poems, Psalms 15 through 24, that opens and closes with a call to covenant faithfulness. And then, Psalm 16 to 18, we find a depiction of David as a model of this kind of faithfulness. So he calls out to God to deliver him, and God elevates him as king. Now, in the corresponding set of poems, Psalms 20 to 23, the David of the past has become an image of the messianic king of the future, who will also call out to God, he will be delivered, and then given a kingdom over the nations. And then right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for the Torah. So here we go. The two themes from Psalms 1 and 2 are bound together tightly here. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. So hopefully that's helpful again as we kind of parachute in on the book of Psalms to understand we are specifically within book two, which is heavily focused on David, an example of him as one that walks with God. And again, so perhaps unsurprisingly, we're going to be looking at God today in the image of shepherd, right, with David starting his life as a shepherd of sheep. Um, but to make sure even more that we understand where Psalm 23 sits within that book, I want to look briefly at Psalm 22, um, which is right before it. And so many of the commentaries that I read talked about how Psalm 23 really is a fitting response to Psalm 22. So Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Later in Psalm 22, everyone who sees me mocks me. My life is poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My strength is dried up like sun-baked clay. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. Those of you who know Psalm 22, it's also one of the prophetic ones about the life of Jesus. But then going ahead to the end of Psalm, Psalm 22, 25, and 31, I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. So we look at this David, right, and we see a man who is doubting. He is weak, he's exhausted, and he feels abandoned, right? And further contrasting with what we're going to do in Psalm 23, Psalm 22 is long. It is a long psalm. It is up and down emotionally, right, as he wrestles through his grief and abandonment but still returns to praising the Lord. It is both personal and then prophetic as he calls all of Israel to put their trust in and worship the Lord. That is the real journey of faith, right? So that's the context then where we enter Psalm 23. It's the context of how David wrestles through grief, suffering, embarrassment, anxiety, anger, abandonment, and ends up in a place of trust. How does he do that? He knows who God is, right? He has experienced him, not the intellectual ascent, the sort of Greek uh, philosophy that we've become such a recipient of in the West that divides our mind and our body. We believe it, but the Hebrew sense where what we believe is carried out in what we do, right? Where what we do 
orthopraxy and what we believe orthodoxy are part of the same coin. David lives this out because it's what he believes. He believes it, and therefore he lives it out. Namely, he has experienced rest. He finds in God's presence rest. So out of that turmoil, let's enter into Psalm 23 and look at how David invites us to surrender to this rest. I picked a slightly different translation. I personally find it helpful to not always read the translation that I have memorized in my brain because sometimes I just skip ahead. Again, busy squirrel brain. So I'm going to do a New Living Translation here. Invite you to rest as I read this to you. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessing. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. What a contrast, right, from Psalm 22 I mean, he's confident, he's feeling rested, he is honored instead of humiliated and abandoned, he is even triumphant, not in a cocky way, but in a confident way, right, in Yahweh God. And what I want to talk about is the four ways that David talks about Yahweh as his shepherd God. And again, what an appropriate metaphor as someone who started his life out there, the runt of the litter and his family, tending the sheep. He talks about God as ruler, as provider, as guide, and as protector. Let's start with ruler because this might be one that for moderns we tend to miss as it flies by. I know I did. Um, and that is the connotation of shepherd implying ruler. Uh, sheep are very important in the Bible. Uh, they were domesticated in the ancient Near East in 7,000 B.C., which, uh, if you do the math, was a long time ago. And they are mentioned more than any other livestock in the Bible, right? They were a core economic resource for agrarian societies. Obviously, their meat, as well as the wool and the hide that had a lot of different uses. So, like lumber to the Pacific Northwest, steel to Pittsburgh, sheep were a big deal. Um, and when you think of a shepherd, you might think of, I don't know, some strangely, some sort of like Dutch or Norwegian boy that got dropped into uh, Middle Eastern clothing here. Um, but what we might want to think about is how these terms were used in the ancient Near East, the neighbors, right, around Israel. So Enlil, chief among Mesopotamian deities, I'm sure you all have spent a lot of time uh, researching Enlil. Uh, he was called the faithful shepherd. Uh, Enuma Elish says of Marduk, let him shepherd all the gods like sheep. And Amenhotep of Egypt um, was known, called, referred to himself as the good shepherd, right? So there was clearly royal connotations. 
And so when we hear David say, the Lord is my shepherd, this is similar to in the New Testament where saying Jesus is Lord was throwing elbows, right? Because at the center of emperor worship, of this this brutal... this ruthless and brutal uh, empire that surrounded all of the Mesopotamian region, all the Mediterranean region, and beyond was the concept of Caesar as Lord, right? Emperor worship. So when the followers of Jesus said, Jesus is Lord, it was both political and spiritual. And so here, David is saying both spiritually that Yahweh is his shepherd. He's also throwing elbows at all these other fake false gods in the area. Second is this concept of God as provider, right? So going back to verse one, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. So shepherds guided their flocks to sustenance and places of rest. And again, the importance of this role might be lost on us, especially given all the rain we had where our greatest challenge in the verdant Willamette Valley is to get things to stop growing, right? We have ferns growing out of moss, which is growing out of a tree that grew out of a tree, right? And so, again, I haven't had the privilege of going to Israel like so many of you had, Pastor Ron and Annette, but the landscape, as you can see here, in, in many places can be quite austere. It is not evident where said sheep will find said food. Uh, I was in Central Oregon last week, and there are certainly places where it gets a little more like that, right? Where if there is an irrigation out in that field, there's not going to be a lot growing other than some grass and shrub. So when we hear against this background, David, a former shepherd of actual sheep, (laughs) and then now a shepherd of a nation say that Yahweh is provider, that he lets me rest in green meadows, he leads me beside peaceful streams, He is giving the highest praise that he knows exactly where to take us and how to provide for us. Now, a quick Bible nerd rabbit trail, if the Bible Project hasn't already been enough for some of you. Annie, Um, The Bible Project has done a great video on the role of water in the Hebrew Bible. So waters are often portrayed as chaotic and terrifying, right? As in Genesis 1, remember, hovering over the chaotic waters. Or even Jesus in the storm on the sea, disciples are absolutely terrified. So we have to remember, this is like primitive craft. And people died all the time, right, in these sort of storms and accidents. So David here is clear that the waters are peaceful. They are serene. They are still. When we look then moving into the New Testament as well, right, we see this concept of Yahweh as provider in the person of Jesus as provider When he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. The third way that David talks about Yahweh as a shepherd is as a guide. And what better compliment could you give to a guide that they get you exactly to where you need to be? He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. I love to fly fish as many of you know. A great guide knows the river, knows the lake like the back of his hand, and he has an instinct for where the fish will be, right? Based on the time of year, based on the conditions, what the hatch is, and also teaches you how to access them. 
Yahweh knows where the right paths are to rest, and he knows how to help each one of you find that path to that rest. He goes on, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. So lest we be tempted to turn this psalm into a saccharine, overly sweet sentiment for a Hallmark card, we are reminded that darkness has entered the world. Even accessing these places of rest, they are not automatic. We have to walk through valleys fraught with danger, temptation, and lest I say, distraction, which I'll return to in a moment. But last, let's talk about the fourth thing, which is we need a good shepherd who is our protector in these dark valleys. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. Due to the importance of sheep to the economic survival of villages, of tribes, a shepherd's role was marked by sustained vigilance for his flock. As the Lexham Bible Dictionary notes, they dealt with inclement weather, substandard lodging, which feels like an understatement of the century, and the threat of dangerous animals intent on eating their livelihood. So the shepherd would carry the appropriate tools, including a staff to help negotiate difficult terrain and count the sheep, and a rod used to defend the sheep from predators. David goes on, you prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. So as David continues, he reverts to this theme of provider that God has not only protected him through the valley, kept him safe from danger, but has honored him in front of these very enemies that in Psalm 22 had him beyond despair. Yahweh has chosen David, signified by an anointing, and has so provided that David is like a cup, so full it cannot contain the blessing. It's just overflowing. Now, double-clicking into where David said he has been anointed with oil. Again, this is another thing that as moderns might kind of swoosh right over our heads. This is a really core concept in both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament where we see Jesus called the anointed one. In John 1, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. John 4, 25, the woman at the well. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And in one of these awesome and confusing translation things we find in the Bible, both Messiah and Christ are simply titles that mean anointed one. So Messiah is, is the Hebrew version, means anointed one. And then Christos is a Greek translation of the Hebrew, which means anointed one. So we can see here that John is ensuring that both his Greek and Hebrew readers understand that Jesus was the guy. He's the one. He has been chosen, chosen to rule, to provide for, to guide and protect his people. And how did Jesus do that? Obviously as giving himself and then in an inversion of the shepherd metaphor, give himself as the lamb of sacrifice for our sins to remove the stain of our selfishness and make us right with God. So David has experienced God as his good shepherd, 
as ruler, as provider, as a guide, and as a protector. And because of that, he is confident, rested, honored, and triumphant. Now, I don't know about y'all. This sounds so good, right? Especially after the week I just had. I'm like, hmm, let's, let's have it, right? What could possibly keep us from entering this rest? It sounds so good, right? Well, Peter, again, reminds us, 1 Peter 5, that finding these places of rest will not be unopposed. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. I love how the agrarian society of the Near East, the metaphor continues through all of Scripture. So, right, we are the sheep here, and who's over in the long grass, right, prowling, just looking for an opportunity to steal our joy, kill the new life in us, destroy our peace in these places of rest. So let's focus on the word that Peter, without accident, I believe, uses right before he talks about the enemy prowling, and it's the word anxiety. And again, i got to be honest with you, just the word anxiety makes me anxious. Um, and it has been my experience and observation that, oh, I'm sorry, get this, you, that's ridiculous, X emoji, poop emoji, that's so dumb, oh, I'm sorry, <clears throat> Or was I? Uh, let's see. Okay, I'm with you. It has been my observation, and I think the body of research is now wide and deep, that these marvels of technology are contributing to a culture of distraction, creating an always-on, always-connected environment of constant stimulus that makes it hard to rest. So Jonathan Haidt, an intellectual... Uh, and in the, a powerful uh, professor and American intellectual talks about the rewiring of our brains that's happening and the anger, anxiety, and hostility that's being created. If you'll just give me five minutes here, let me walk through some of this and how they're seeing our brains are being affected and how this can prevent us from entering these places of rest. So let me read from Mr. Height. In February 2012, as he prepared to take Facebook public, Mark Zuckerberg reflected on these extraordinary times and set forth his plan. This is so great. Today our society has reached another tipping point. Facebook hoped to rewire the way people spread and consume information and transform many of our core institutions and industries. Big visions. In the 10 years since then, Zuckerberg did exactly what he said he would do. He did rewire the way we spread and consume information. He did transform our institutions and he pushed us past the tipping point. It has not worked out as he expected. He goes on, in the early incarnations, for people like me that re remember life before Facebook, believe it or not, uh, platforms like MySpace and Facebook were relatively harmless. They allowed users to create pages on which to post photos, cat gifs, family updates. But gradually, social media users became more comfortable sharing intimate details of their life with strangers and corporations. They became more adept in putting on performances and managing their personal brand. I 
activities that might impress others, but did not deepen friendships in the way a private phone call might. And the stage was set for a major transformation. Before 2009, you got the simple timeline. Anybody remember that? Could be overwhelming, a never-ending stream of content created by people around you, newest at the top, oldest at the bottom. But this changed in 2009 when Facebook offered users a way to publicly like the post with a click of a button. That same year, Twitter introduced retweet, Facebook introduced share. Why does this matter? Other than you know that I sell software and I took a hard right tangent. Well, shortly after its like button, Facebook began to produce data about what best engaged its users. Make sense? Facebook developed algorithms then to bring each user the content most likely to generate a like or some other interaction. Again, makes sense, eventually including the share button as well. The problem is that later research has now shown that the posts that trigger emotions, especially anger, are the most likely to be shared. And this has led to what another intellectual, uh, Johan Hari, refers to in his book, which is, enraging is engaging. He wrote a book, it's come out recently, Again, full notice, he is not a follower of Jesus. He is liberal with language that is not always appropriate. But he wrote very powerful insights in this book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention to How to Think Deeply Again. He talked about, I could feel my own attention getting worse. Things like deep conversations were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. I could still do them, but they were getting harder and I could see this happening to most people I know. The average American, y'all, touches their phones 2,000 times a day. And I have had moments of personal shame where my kids are like, hey, Dad, hey, Dad, hey, Dad, keep reading the book. And I found that I just entered a totally different world on my device in the middle of nighttime bed reading, right? So this is not a shame thing. It's a recognition that I was at a swim center last week. I was looking around, and I was the only person standing in line. I mean, it was about to open in like three minutes. Like, we were not going to be there a long time. I was the only one that was not giraffe-necked in my phone. And again, not to be sanctimonious, I wanted to be giraffe-necked in my phone. <laughs> it was burning a hole in my pocket. But I've also recognized, as Johan did, that it was affecting his ability to concentrate and have deep conversations. And because of my own addictive brain, that I am susceptible to become addicted to that little hit, right? So rest is something that we have to fight for. It is not something the powers and authorities and algorithms of this world are going to serve up to us. We are going to get a 24-7 feed of bad news and enraging clickbait headlines because that is literally what pays the bills. It is empty mental and spiritual junk food. And on top of that, for me, again, personally, is rest is just not something I'm wired for. I would much rather be at Baker's Prairie on my third coffee with a bunch of people listening to podcasts on economics, anything but be alone with my thoughts. And indeed, Blaise Pascal, a Christian and a father of modern science, said all of humanity's problems stem from a man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. He said this in the 1600s. <laughs> so clearly this isn't just a right now problem. Again, I would argue that technology has made it 
much worse, much harder, but is not just a right now thing. People, we need a return to holy time. And sometimes words can get churchified. And so at its core, holy means set apart. I've met with a group of three or four other guys for the last seven years. And we, each, each week, we'll check in on how we're doing with God, how we're doing with our family, how we're doing at our workplaces. And then we each set a fourth thing that we believe God wants us to work on right now. And for basically all of the last seven years, mine has been to learn to be still and quiet. Because the Spirit made me aware that all of my other issues were really just symptoms of a deeper sickness, right? An inability to be quiet before the Lord. So, don't laugh, but I learned to sit still for five minutes. And then it was ten minutes. And then it was fifteen minutes. And it's only taken me seven years. But I actually want quiet now. I want stillness with the Lord because I recognize the kind of person I am when I exit that time. And I like that me a lot better. I still can have a crazy fun brain. I can still be creative. But I find a way to find the brake pedal when I need to stop and be still and meet with the Lord. Now I want to offer you, as we come to the end, some resources. I believe similar to creating practices, whether it be around substances like alcohol or eating or other things we may struggle with, that we are going to have to develop cultural practices to keep technology in its proper place. And one of them that I think is incredibly simple, and you can get it at Fred Meyer or you could get it on Etsy, is a phone charging station, right? You just plug it in and you leave it there, which is crazy. But if you're like me, you remember there used to be a spot in the house that the phone was, and you had to go to it when it rang. And I can assure you, you can make it in time. There are enough rings, right? Or if, it te- or if there's a ding and you need to check the text, make sure it's not a kid or someone needs something, you can walk on over, check it. But leaving it there, rather than constantly every ding and dunk, oh, my, I can't believe that happened. Oh, what a jerk. Just let it be, right? Be present with your family. And again, this might not be for you either. Again, this is not a legalism thing. Please go do all four of these things. These are ideas. You're going to have to go before the Lord and figure it out. Um, Another is every phone operating system this day lets you set quiet hours, lets you determine what gets through. And I can set it where, like, my wife gets through, friends get through, but I don't get any notifications from any social media app or any news app, right, when I'm in personal time with my family. Third, there are some apps on the phone that can actually help with this, right? Uh, Soul Space is a great app that lets you spend five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes with the Lord, has some scripture reading. Uh, the Bible app, many of us use the Bible app for scripture, has a podcast section. It will be 30 minutes of just scripture reading and prayer and time before the Lord. And then lastly, um, there's this innovation. It's a little bit of an old school innovation, but there's actually like pieces of paper that get pressed together and there's a sort of like adhesive on the side um, and they're called books. And so I personally have found books very helpful because I just cannot uh, get, have some notification come to the front and distract me because their operating system does not support notifications. Um, So the daily office has been really helpful for me. 
uh, a brief prayer, brief time of stillness before the Lord, a bit of scripture, um, or another one, if you need something a little more deep to get some of that plaque off the spiritual teeth, uh, is soul custody. Talks about how you take custody of your, of your inner world um, at work, in your marriage, in your family, and beyond. So in closing, I want to invite you to spend some time in rest with me. I'm just going to do one or two minutes. I'm not going to tell you which one it's going to be. Be part of the fun. Just in silence and rest before the Lord. And then I'm going to read Psalm 23 one last time, and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. And again, if you feel just super distracted, that's okay. If this is uncomfortable, I'm right there with you. But let's take a couple minutes and just be still before the Lord. Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely, your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.